well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking about a uh, new poll from Gallup, investigating Americans' attitudes towards a gun control, and a, uh, i to say, a staggeringly high number of Democrats in favor of something that would clearly violate our Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. We'll get to that in just one moment. Before we do, however, there's something else we need to talk about. Joe Biden's America and, you know, how it's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers one after the other. America's working two jobs just to get by. Inflation, pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch me next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. Now, I will say that um, I, I, I don't put a ton of stock in any particular poll, right? Every poll has a margin of error. Um, you have a small sample size that can obviously skew the results. So I don't typically talk about or even report on every poll that comes out. Um, I think the last time we actually talked about a poll here on Cam and Company was a poll of New Mexico voters shortly after Michelle Lujan Grisham had uh, announced her attempt to try to ban uh, open and concealed carry in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. That was a survey of something like, you know, 1,400 New Mexico voters, um, which was a pretty big sample size, right? And even if you want to account for a margin of error, let's say 5% either way, uh, that wouldn't have changed the fact that a sizable majority of New Mexico uh, survey respondents, anyway, uh, felt like the governor was barking up the wrong tree when it came to fighting violent crime by going after law-abiding citizens. Gallup's survey is worth talking about because they do this on a regular basis. Uh, they've been asking roughly the same questions going back for decades. So while any particular poll, again, may not be a perfect snapshot of where the American electric stands on a particular issue, um, you can at least, I think, get a sense of how attitudes are changing, <clears throat> excuse me, or hardening over time. Uh, and that is certainly the case when it comes to this Gallup the survey, this most recent survey. So their top line takeaway is that Americans, they say, continue to support stricter gun laws. Uh, 56% of survey respondents in their latest survey said that they in general, feel that laws covering the sale of firearms should be made more strict compared to 31% who say they should be kept the same and another 12% who say uh, these laws should be made less strict. So you can see a slight majority of respondents say, uh, yeah, yeah, we should have uh, tougher gun laws. And that number hasn't really changed over time. I mean, uh, you go back to the early 1990s, almost 80% of Americans said, yeah, 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 it should be more strict, right? Uh, and even through uh, through the 1990s, 
that number was uh, north of 60%. There was a, a small spike in the late 1990s, and then the uh, uh, number of Americans who were in favor of stricter gun laws uh, declined. Uh, a couple of spikes here and there. 2004, Gallup noticed a, uh, an increase. Uh, by 2012, that number had dropped below uh, 60%, had dropped below 50%, as a matter of fact. Uh, then you had Sandy Hook and a spike. Again, up to about 56% of Americans saying that gun laws should be kept more strict. Um, continued to rise through 2018. And uh, since then, it's kind of, I don't want to say all over the map, uh, but you have seen a uh, modest uh, increase and a reduction, then a uh, increase and a reduction. Gallup notes that uh, a lot of the findings may be related to when this survey takes place. So they ask these questions right after a high-profile mass shooting incident like what happened in Uvalde. Those numbers are going to be higher than if you ask this question when we don't have a horrific event like that fresh on our minds. Um, Gallup went on to uh, elaborate about this year's survey. While Americans do want gun laws tightened, they also do not favor a ban on handguns for ordinary citizens, something that Gallup has asked about since 1959. Just 27% of U.S. adults believe that no one outside of police or other authorized persons should be able to possess a handgun. The current figure, they say, is on the lower end of what Gallup has measured historically, including 60% of Americans who favored a ban on handguns in 1959 and roughly 4 in 10 Americans in most surveys conducted between 1975 and 1993. The low point of 19% favoring a ban on handguns came in an October 2021 survey. So what is accounting for this slight increase uh, from 19% in 2021 to 27% of Americans today saying, yeah, 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 we should uh, ban handguns? Well, that rise, I think, can be attributed exclusively to an increased support uh, in handgun bans, uh, primarily among Democrats. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but you can also look and see here. This is a graph that Gallup has put together. Uh, you can see, again, the declining support for a ban on handguns over the decades. As Gallup said, 1959, 60% of Americans said, oh, yeah, should absolutely ban handguns. Uh, but ever since about, I don't know, the mid-1960s or so, uh, the percentage of Americans agreeing with this statement has been below 50%. Uh, and then once you get into, you know, roughly the last uh, couple of decades, support is closer to, again, 20, 25 percent, something like that. About the same percentage of Americans who believe in Bigfoot, uh, honestly, um, not a popular position among the American electorate. But it is a popular position among one particular political party. Again, we'll get to that in just a second. One of the other questions that Gallup asked was, do you believe that a firearm in the home makes the home safer or more dangerous? Uh, and on this, again, you can see the trend line. More Americans say having a firearm in their home makes it safer. In fact, by a two-to-one majority, Americans say having a gun in the home makes that home a safer place. Now, those numbers have basically reversed themselves over the past two decades, in uh, 2000, some uh, 51% of Americans said, oh, it makes a home a more dangerous place. 35% said, yeah, no, 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 it makes it more safe. 
the uh, uh, trend lines crossed uh, around 2005. And starting about 2014, uh, the percentage has been pretty stagnant, with about two-thirds of Americans saying that a firearm in the home makes it a safer place. About one-third of Americans say, no, no, it makes it more dangerous. It's fascinating that we really haven't seen any change at all in those uh, figures over the past decade. And again, uh, while support for uh, general uh, gun control laws, right, we need to make it tougher to get a gun, those vary, right? The, 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 the levels of support vary from year to year. And as Gallup said, a lot of it's based on when that question is asked. We don't see that same type of variance when it comes to Americans' belief that having a farm in the home makes it a safer place. Now, again, this also depends on what political party we're talking about here. And Gallup did uh, helpfully provide a breakdown, at least for some of the questions that they asked. Uh, so, for instance, preference for uh, more strict gun laws. Well, you can see there, Democrats far and away the uh, most supportive of the idea of having uh, more restrictions in place. A slight majority of independents uh, say, yes, they'd like to see uh, uh, tougher gun laws. Uh, Republicans. By and large, say, keep the status quo or uh, actually make it easier to exercise your right to keep and bear arms. When it comes to a ban on handguns, this is where you really start to see the difference between Democrats and independents and Republicans. 49% of the Democrats who were surveyed by Gallup say they are in favor of a handgun ban. Half of the Democrats who were surveyed, well, almost half, within the margin of error, say that, yeah, they're all on board with a ban on handguns. Just 26% of independents say the same thing, and about 6% of Republicans say that they are in favor of a ban on handguns. The same uh, disparity in views is evident when it comes to the question of whether or not a firearm uh, makes a home a safer place. The vast majority of Democrats say, no, no, no. Uh, a gun in the home makes that more dangerous. But again, about two-thirds of independents and uh, about four out of five Republicans say the opposite, that having a farm in the home makes it a safer place. In a summary, Gallup uh, noted that in 2001, 61% of Democrats, 44% of Republicans wanted gun laws to be stricter. Since then, they say there's been a 27 percentage point increase in the percentage of Democrats favoring stricter laws and an 18-point decrease among Republicans, while independents' views haven't really changed that much. Compared with 2000, Gallup says the percentage of Republicans in favor of a handgun ban has fallen 19 points. They say Democrats and independents' views on this issue are generally similar to what they were in 2000. But again, if the Republican support has fallen, and yet support for a ban on handguns is, what, eight points higher than it was two years ago, uh, I'm guessing, the, again, most of that increase can be attributed not to the independents changing their minds, because two-thirds of them were opposed to a handgun ban. Actually, with more than two-thirds. Uh, while half of Democrats are in support of a handgun ban, again, it looks like, despite Gallup's uh, reference to uh, you know the, the uh, positions of Democrats remaining mostly static, it doesn't look like that's the case here. Uh, again, not when it comes to a ban on handguns. Gallup also notes that the percentage of Republicans who think guns make homes safer has nearly doubled since 2000, from 44% to 
Independents, they say, also show a large shift in the same direction from 36% in 2000 to 66% today, while Democrats are slightly more likely today than in 2000 to think that guns make homes safer. So even among Democrats, you've seen a shift of about nine points, 28% in 2000, 37% today, uh, believing that uh, uh, the home makes it a safer place. So the gun control groups are even losing ground among Democrats when it comes to personal gun ownership, which I think is really important. Although Gallup also notes that a declining number of Democrats self-reported owning a firearm than they did just a couple of years ago. So while the attitudes might be shifting, uh, gun ownership, well, unfortunately, I mean, we, you know, and listen, I know that there are pro-gun Democrats out there. I know them. Well, not all of them. Maybe a good chunk of them based on the Gallup survey, but I don't know all of them. But we do know that over the last three years, uh, there have been folks across the political spectrum, Republicans, Independents, Democrats, people who say none of the above, who have embraced their right to keep and bear arms. I wonder if um, uh, the data on self-reporting of gun ownership, either personal or I live in a household with a gun, I I, I do wonder if the margin of error is uh, not going to be a bit wider when that question is asked, because I do think that folks um, may be uh, inclined to answer questions honestly about their attitudes towards gun ownership, but aren't necessarily going to tell a stranger on the phone, uh, yes, I own a gun. I think those numbers are underreported uh, to a large degree. So what can we take away from these surveys or this particular survey? Again, Americans roughly divided about whether or not we need more unnamed and uh, nonspecific gun laws. Uh, but our attitudes towards firearms for self-defense, our attitudes towards handgun bans um, are shifting away from the gun control lobby's ideology, which goes along with what we've been saying here for some time, that gun control is losing. This issue is losing. The gun control lobby is not gaining ground, but they are losing ground. You know, again, in the 1960s, the number one item on the uh, anti-gunners to-do list was to ban handguns. That, I mean, that was it, right? Handgun Control Incorporated uh, was the uh, the big gun control lobby of the 60s and early 70s. You had Washington, D.C. enact its ban on handguns in 1976. Uh, Chicago followed in the early 1980s. Um, th and this was supposed to be the start of a trend, right? In 1976, uh, gun control groups even managed to put a ballot referendum before Massachusetts voters to ban handguns statewide. They lost that vote, by the way. Might actually win today in Massachusetts, given the anti-gun attitudes, but they lost in 1976, which should have been a sign again that what they were selling, uh, a lot of Americans weren't interested in buying, Right. And that was really sort of the high watermark for the gun control movement when cities like D.C. and Chicago passed their handgun ban. The problem for the gun control lobby is that that was, that was a chance to prove, right, that, that more guns equals more crime. And that if you restrict access to handguns, if you take away the law-abiding citizens' ability to own a firearm for self-defense, that that will impact violent crime overall. And I guess it did. 
Problem is, violent crime went up. Homicides soared in Washington, D.C. They soared in Chicago. Now, they soared across the country. But the fact that D.C. and Chicago had banned handguns didn't make those cities immune from the increase in violent crime and murders. Quite the opposite. Um, Chicago and D.C. were more dangerous places than the national average. Now, after D.C.'s handgun ban disappeared in 2008, thanks to the Heller decision, Chicago's handgun ban went away in 2010, thanks to McDonald. Violent crime dropped. In fact, uh, homicides plummeted in Washington, D.C. The exact opposite of what was supposed to happen, according to the gun control activists. So I think as we've seen, again, decades of, of experience, Americans, even those who aren't gun owners, even those who are soft supporters of gun control, let's say, you know, a good chunk of that 56% of Americans who say, yeah, I think it should be harder to get a gun. I don't think many of those folks could tell you what specific policy would stop violent criminals, but I think a lot of them are looking for that easy answer. That is the emotional appeal of the gun control uh, ideology, particularly for those folks who don't own a firearm, right? Because they don't have to do anything. Ah, uh, sure, I might have to uh, sacrifice a right that I'm not exercising, but I don't really care much about that right anyway. So all we have to do is make it harder for those guys over there to legally purchase a gun. I don't have to do anything to change my life. And uh, aha, well, that's the answer. I think it's become harder and harder to believe that over the decades. Again, because of the experience that we've seen in places like D.C. and Chicago, other uh, gun-restricted locales like California, where there is still plenty of violent crime, uh, you know, and we see, again, these incidents that take place in gun-free zones, like the uh, mass murder in Lewiston, which began in a place that had posted a sign that said, please leave your firearms outside. While we might want that easy answer, I think um, more Americans are waking up to the, uh, to, the, to the fact that we can't ban our way to safety, that infringing on the rights of law-abiding citizens to exercise their right to keep and bear arms doesn't stop a violent criminal from committing a home invasion, an armed robbery, a carjacking, or another violent crime. Which brings us to today's recidivist report from Washington, D.C., where a 12-year-old has been arrested in a suspected carjacking that led to a 13-year-old suspected carjacker's death by an off-duty federal officer. Now, I wrote about, I've read about this uh, uh, incident a couple of times at Bearing Arms, uh, including on Tuesday afternoon. Um, when I wrote about the uh, comments by Mayor Muriel Bowser, who talked about the uh, the toxic combination of guns and youth and crime, didn't say anything at all about the lack of consequences here. Um, as it turns out, the 13-year-old who was shot and killed by this off-duty federal security officer who was sitting in his car uh, when these two juveniles approached and uh, tried to carjack him, Turns out that 13-year-old suspect had been arrested for carjacking back in May when he was just 12 years old. He was accused of nine separate carjackings in May. Don't know 
how much, if any time, he spent in the custody of authorities. But he was clearly back out on the streets in late October committing more of these crimes. Mayor Bowser mentioned a, another case over the weekend. A, uh, I think it was a 15-year-old girl who was arrested for attempted carjacking. She was released to the custody of her parents by a judge, uh, a fact that uh, the mayor uh, vehemently disagreed with, uh, said that uh, she should have been placed again in a secure facility because this was her seventh arrest for carjacking. Seventh. She's 15 years old. Now, there's not a gun law that you could put on the books that is going to stop a 12, 13, 15-year-old from illegally obtaining a firearm and using the commission of a violent crime. You can pass all kinds of storage laws. You can pass universal background checks. You can pass magazine bans. But these teens or tweens are not getting their guns legally. It was this phenomena, a rise in juvenile crime in Boston in the late 1990s, that led to uh, what's colloquially known as the uh, Boston Miracle, um, a 50% reduction in juvenile homicide rates. And it did not come about because of any gun control laws. It came about because of a program called Operation Ceasefire, which we've also talked about quite a bit here at Bearing Arms. And the idea, uh, David Kennedy, who was uh, one of the architects of this uh, measure, he talked about how he was speaking with uh, Boston Police Commissioner Bill Bratton, uh, who was a commissioner at the time. And Bratton wanted this sort of, you know, traditional gun control approach. Well, we need more gun laws. And Kennedy said, look, th these kids aren't getting guns legally. There's not a law that you can put in place that's going to touch them. Uh, instead, what you've got to do is focus on who's actually committing these crimes. And... So you had this group of academics working with Boston police, particularly the gang unit, to identify, okay, who are the gangs in Boston? Let's just identify all of the gangs. Now, who are the gangs that are the most problematic? Who's causing the most trouble? And who are the members of those gangs that are, again, responsible for a disproportionate amount of violent crime within that particular cohort? Let's focus on those individuals, the worst of the worst. Most of them, again, already uh, well-known to law enforcement, as this 13-year-old in Washington, D.C. was. Many of them have already been in court before. They're already on probation. They're already on parole. But at the time, and we see this same phenomenon today, they were sort of caught in this catch-and-release system, right? They get arrested. Nothing much happens. They get out. They go on to commit another crime. Nothing much happens. And so they understandably, we're left with the impression that they could get away with these crimes. With Operation Ceasefire, the message was you can't. You're going to stop shooting. Well, one way or the other, we'll help you if you let us, but we're going to make you stop if you don't. So behind door number one, uh, we've got counselors. We've got mentors. We've got people who will help you get your GED. We've got people who will help you with job training. We've got people who will help you turn your life around because they love you and they care about you and they don't want to see you die before you turn 21. Behind door number two, we have the U.S. Attorney's Office. We have the FBI. Uh, we have the District Attorney. Uh, and these individuals are going to ensure that you go away for a long, long time if you continue down this road. We're going to go after you for every charge that we can think of. We're not going to plea bargain 
these cases away. You're not going to get a slap on the wrist. Whenever possible, we're going to refer your cases up to federal court where there are longer sentences, where there is no early release. And those are your options. Again, we'll help you if you let us. We'll make you stop shooting if you don't. And there were some people who had their cases referred to the federal court system. They did end up getting 20-year, 25-year sentences. And that message sunk in, and you started having more and more of these uh, offenders reach out and say, hey, you know what? I don't want to end up like that guy. I'm ready for some help. I'm ready to help turn my life around. And again, the result was a 50% reduction in juvenile homicides. These programs are still around. In fact, Jason Miyar is the Attorney General in Virginia. We had him on just a few weeks ago talking about Operation Ceasefire here in the Commonwealth. Um, and I am very proud of the small role that I helped play in, in bringing Operation Ceasefire to the state because I think it is valuable because it does save lives, it does reduce crime, and it doesn't infringe on anybody's rights. That seems to me like it hits the sweet spot. Unfortunately, when it comes to juvenile offenders in so many cities right now, it's like Boston in the 1990s. It's a catch-and-release system. Well, we don't want to harm these kids by you know, putting them in, in juvenile custody and keeping them behind bars. Listen, if, if the option is harming a kid by putting them in a secure juvenile facility or releasing that kid to their parents who are letting them roam the streets committing carjackings, you're doing more harm by being soft on that juvenile. Sometimes they need that intensive supervision. Sometimes they need those positive role models. Sometimes they need that positive reinforcement. They're not going to get it at home. They're damn sure not going to get it on the streets. Now, we can talk again about how well or not well the juvenile justice system is functioning in terms of rehabilitating uh, youthful offenders, in terms of providing that support network. A lot of cases, again, the juvenile system is broken. But the answer is not to turn a blind eye to these crimes or to downplay or dismiss the severity. The answer is to fix the broken system so that it works the way it's supposed to. And sadly, that's not being done in uh, most of these Democrat-run cities. Today's Armed Citizen story, uh, hat tip to uh, Jeff Charles from Red State, who uh, actually ran across this from uh, the St. Louis area a couple days ago. Suspect killed in attempted car theft leads police to a larger organized auto theft crime ring. Now, I, I take a little bit of issue with the uh, phrasing of the headline about an attempted car theft, because this kind of sounds like more of a uh, carjacking to me. It was uh, around midnight in a strip mall parking lot in Webster Groves, Missouri, on Saturday. Quiet area, not a lot of crime there generally. But outside of the uh, Hot Shot Sports Bar and Grill, uh, there was an incident. Man told police he was sitting in his car when he heard glass breaking. He said when he uh, got out of his car, he saw two men wearing black ski masks running towards him. Lieutenant Jillian McCoy, who's uh, Lieutenant of Criminal Investigations for the Webster Groves Police Department, says, um, when you have two individuals who have black ski masks and they're coming at you at a high rate of speed after committing several felonies, any normal person in their right mind would fear for their life. That's why the uh, individual in question drew his firearm and shot, striking and killing 19-year-old Javian Bibby 
His accused accomplice, 18-year-old Ronnie Jewett, then picked up Bibby's gun, so Bibby was armed, raised it up at the victim. That's when the victim shot several more rounds towards the area where Jewett was. Jewett uh, took off running. Police found him uh, soon after. McCoy said he actually admitted to law enforcement during the course of our investigation that he stashed the farm in a storage closet that he broke into. Jewett, now charged with second-degree murder, armed criminal action, attempted stealing of a motor vehicle, and tampering with physical evidence, bond set at $1 million. McCoy says when the pair arrived in Webster Groves, they showed up in a stolen vehicle out of Hazelwood, Missouri. She said these kind of situations turn dangerous very quickly. Most individuals who do these types of crimes are armed, and they are dangerous. Uh, McCoy said uh, that Bibby and Jewett, they believe, are now part of a uh, were part of a larger organized auto theft ring across the St. Louis area. Again, individuals who are believed to be, she says, known to be armed and dangerous. She says, our hope is that we can deter this crime and that we'll eventually be able to identify other individuals related to this organized crime. We do believe that there are several others out there, and we do have a few others that have been identified. Um, in the meantime, the armed citizen. Not expected to face any charges. As the uh, lieutenant said, he had a very reasonable fear for his life, and he used his Second Amendment rights and his personally owned firearm to save and defend his own life. Finally, today's good deed of the day in the right place at the right time, well, unable to do the right thing. Officers in uh, Florida and New Jersey who helped deliver babies recently, a police officer in Apopka, Florida, and uh, police officers in Bergenfield, New Jersey, both arriving on the scene uh, in time to uh, welcome these new babies into the world. In uh, Florida, it was uh, Apopka police officer uh, Adsadula Brooks. Delivering a baby on Monday, Brooks and recruit officer Laura Crespo responded to a 911 call about a woman in labor once they got inside the home, they uh, realized, oh, eh, eh, there's no time to get to the hospital. Uh, Brooks, who's a father himself, took charge, helped deliver the uh, baby boy there in uh, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Uh, Christian and Cherise Springs said they were settled in for the night back on September 16th. About 1.30 in the morning, all of a sudden, uh, Cherise starts experiencing contractions. Christian said he had bags loaded, ready to go to the hospital. Car was on, ready to go, but his wife literally could not move from the painful contraction. So after about 10 minutes, they decided to call 911. Uh, Christian Springs says, within a few minutes, car rushes up to my open door. He says, I'll always remember the operator saying, congratulations at the start. The officer hurried to the bathroom, see my wife standing over the sink in pain. He asks her questions, investigates, and then says, it's happening here. Uh, Spriggs says the officers acted swiftly and decisively. They turned the living room into a uh, birthing suite of sort, blankets spread out, pillows arranged, furniture moved to create a space for the uh, uh, mom-to-be to lay down. Sharice, uh, though, said, I, I, I can't make it down there. Uh, her husband, Christian, said one officer said, well, she's going to have it standing. So two officers grabbed blankets, holding underneath from each side. My wife leaned on me, another held her from behind, and uh, they started to deliver that baby. Christian Spriggs says uh, the officers on hand offered affirmation, comfort, he said, uh, one said, come on, mama, good job. Place your hand on my shoulder to help her stand. Another said, honey, you're doing a great job. And then one officer asked if I was okay as I was holding my wife, but probably struggling. I let him take over. The last officer stood next to me and encouraged me, saying that everything's going to be fine. Uh, officers Oscar Lopez, Eric Lind, among the members of the department who uh, showed up at the Spriggs house that night uh, after what was described as a lot of struggle 
teamwork and support from the officers, Sharice did give birth to a a healthy baby girl, Mila Crystal Spriggs. As uh, Christian held his daughter for the first time, officers congratulated him, shared some uh, kind words. And uh, Christian Spriggs says, our family will be forever grateful. There is a, a picture of the officers in question uh, with Christian Spriggs and his new daughter, Mila. So again, in the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing. These uh, fine officers from uh, Bergenfield, New Jersey, hoping to uh, welcome a, a new life into the world. We thank you for your very, very good deed. That is about all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bering Arms Cam and Company. But I do want to let you know, tomorrow we're going to be turning our attention to what's going on in the town of Sudbury, Massachusetts, where looks like town officials are getting ready to impose a gun store ban. And they are pointing to the uh, mass murders in Lewiston, Maine, as justification to prevent people from exercising their own right of uh, self-defense. We'll talk about that with uh, one of the folks from uh, the Gun Owners Action League uh, on tomorrow's Bearing Arms Cam and Company. In the meantime, don't forget to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day. We're keeping you up to date on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information, including uh, ATF Director Steve Dettelbach calling for a ban on so-called assault weapons at Harvard. Just don't ask him to define what a quote-unquote assault weapon is and uh, more Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. Again, you can find it all at BarryAndArms.com. If you like what you see, I'd encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. All you have to do, go to BarryAndArms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As Ari was saying, thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. News stories and analysis that matter, just like your support. So thank you again. Enjoy the rest of your hump day Wednesday. We'll see you back here soon. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free. 